0: We do appreciate the presence of each one today. We hope you come here to worship God, to take it seriously. We certainly do. Feel like our uh, we think that our what we say here today, what we do here today, our actions are significant as we meet together to worship God, sing together and pray together, to remember God's blessings, especially the crucifixion of Christ and what that means for us. So again, very serious situation, and take it very seriously and soberly as we gather together for worship and trust you've done the same. Appreciate those who have led us today. Uh, We've sung about God's amazing love, especially shown to us in the sacrifice of Christ. Talked about heaven. There is a habitation that God has laid up for us or prepared for us. And if you sang the first song, you made a promise to God that you would pray you pray in the morning, and you'd pray at noontime, you'd pray in the evening. And so I think, I hope that, I, that you thought seriously about the words of that song and what you were promising God you would do as we sang about prayer. But we appreciate all those who have led us today. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, Having the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe... Therefore, we also speak." You know, I don't know that there was ever a person who preached what he believed was right, regardless of the consequences, more than the Apostle Paul. If he believed it, he was going to say it. If he believed it, he was going to to preach it. And if there were good consequences as a result, praise be to God, if things were hard as a result, he was okay with that as well. He believed it. He was going to speak it. Most of us, if we uh, are faced with some adverse consequences to what we say, uh, we begin to equivocate a little bit. We, we might dodge a little bit. Maybe we become a little bit ambiguous in what we say, or we try to make our statements a little less offensive. But not Paul. And I don't think he was unnecessarily harsh. And I think a close reading of Paul's writings and his sermons would indicate that. Not not unnecessarily harsh, but if he believed something was right, he was going to say it irregardless or regardless of whether uh, the problems would result. And there were some problems as a result of what he had to say. The final eight chapters of the book of Acts tell us about some of those problems. In these chapters, (coughs) Paul is falsely accused, his safety is threatened, he's wrongfully imprisoned, he's made a political pawn, all because he preached what he described as the hope of Israel in Acts chapter 28 and verse 20. During this time, and this this period of time uh, covers a few years, but during this time Paul has an opportunity to, to preach to several different kinds of people. He preaches to the guards, for example do you think Paul would do while he's under arrest and there's a guard standing there, and I think I know what he would do. He would try to tell him about Christ and how that guard could become a Christian and as a result become right with God. But he also had opportunities to speak some, to some very powerful men. Agrippa was one of those men that Paul spoke to while he was a prisoner. And we're going to look at what Paul has to say to Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, And so turn there, Acts chapter 26, and we're going to look at Paul's presentation, his defense made to King Agrippa. Verse 1 says, Agrippa said to Paul, you're permitted to speak for yourself. And Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. That raises the question, well, who who is Agrippa? Let's talk a little bit about the identity of this particular man. He's identified as a king. He's called King Agrippa. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the ruler of Judea when Jesus was born. Uh, Herod Agrippa, so sometimes he's identified as Herod Agrippa. Agrippa ruled over portions of Galilee where Jesus did his ministry, and a region called Perea, which is on the east side of the Jordan River. He, as well as, the, as well as the other Herods, were closely associated with the Jews. They ruled Judea. They were familiar with Judaism. They were familiar with the Jewish way of life. And for the most part, Agrippa tried to support that. He tried to support the Jews and, and support their, the practice of their religion. He was instrumental in the completion of the temple, which was being built during Jesus' day, and he is involved in other construction projects around the city of Jerusalem. He had a knowledge of and sympathy toward the Jews, reflected, for example, in verses 2 and 3. Paul says, I regard, in regard to all the things of which I'm accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate King Agrippa, that I'm about to make my defense before you today, especially Because you're an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And so Paul knew Agrippa was sympathetic to the Jews, supportive of the Jews. He was an expert in Jewish custom and the Jewish way of life. he knew quite a bit, quite a lot about the Jewish religion. And so Paul says, this is a great opportunity for me. I, I count it a blessing to be able to make my defense before you. And so Paul proceeds to do that beginning in verse 4. There's kind of an introduction in uh, verses 4, 5, and 6, and 7. Let's read through that and we can see how Paul begins his presentation here. He says, So then, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that I lived as a Pharisee among, uh, according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I'm standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O King, I'm being accused of the Jews." So Paul, in a general way, describes his circumstances. It's kind of a contrast between then and now. Now, all these Jews know how I used to live, how I lived then. He refers to his former manner of life and the way he lived as a Pharisee, verse 5, the strictest sect of the Jews. So Paul was a conscientious Pharisee, very meticulous in keeping the traditions of the fathers that had been handed down generation after generation. We talk a lot about the Pharisees as Jesus interacts with them during the course of his lifetime. And so the contrast between Paul's life then, living as a Pharisee, but now I proclaim the gospel of Christ. Now I proclaim the hope of Israel. That's how he describes it here in verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. I'm standing on trial now For proclaiming the hope of Israel. What Paul explains in his preaching is that the promises made to the Jews uh, by God to their fathers like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and others that those had come to pass in Jesus Christ. And there were Jews of course who didn't like the way he connected the life of Jesus to the Old Testament promises. And so they had him arrested and imprisoned. Some wanted even to kill him. And on occasion there were plots made to kill Paul, to assassinate him. And so Paul says, this is the way I used to live, and there's been a remarkable drastic change in my life. Now I want to tell you about that change. I want to tell you why I've made that particular change. And so he, he proceeds. The first thing he does is he appeals to their reason in verse 8. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? Well, why is that so hard to believe? That God would raise the dead. And of course the uh, Greeks and the Romans, they were well known for rejecting the idea of a resurrection of the body. Uh, the Jews of course believed that God could ra- raise the dead. But, but others simply disbelieved it. And so why do you think it's incredible that God could raise, raise the dead? I- is it too hard for Him to raise the dead? <laughs> you know, Seems to be the implication. Well, well of course not. If God can create man from the dust of the ground and breathe into his nostrils the breath of life, well then certainly God can give life to one who has died. And so establishing that, that it's not too difficult for God, that it's not unreasonable to think God could raise the dead, is there any evidence that God has raised the dead? If God could raise the dead, then the next question is, has God raised the dead? And so Paul proceeds to give the evidence that convinced him that God raised Jesus from the dead, beginning in verse 9. Now there are several lines of evidence in support of the resurrection of Jesus, and we talk about those from time to time. We talk about the empty tomb. The women and the disciples went to the tomb on the first day of the week, and it was empty. And we raise the question, who could have stolen the body out of the tomb? And we see that there's really no satisfactory explanation for that question other than that Jesus was, in fact, raised from the dead. We talk about the eyewitness accounts that Jesus was raised, men and women who spent time with Jesus after His crucifixion. We talk about their integrity, the integrity of the witnesses. And that leads us to the conclusion that, well, yes, God must have raised Jesus from the dead. We talk about the scriptural support as well passages like the 16th Psalm and the 2nd Psalm pointing to the resurrection of Jesus, fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. And so there are several lines of evidence that would convince a person that Jesus is raised from the dead, but those are not the evidence, well, well one of them is, we'll get to that in a minute, but those are not the main lines of evidence that Paul uses in his defense. Paul's situation is a special case in a way. His experience makes his situation a special case. Think about who Paul was when he lived his life as a Pharisee, and then who he became, and what might be required to make that kind of of change in Paul's life. You see, before he became a Christian, when he was living as a Pharisee, he was a committed denier of the resurrection of Jesus. He was an active opponent of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was an adversarial extremist. We we hear a lot about extremists today, don't we? This verse is extremist or that's an extreme position. I I don't think there's any question Saul was an extremist. He would go to any lengths within his power to to put a stop to the gospel and this notion that Jesus of Nazareth was killed but was raised from the dead on on the first day of the week. And yet he does change. Now, he doesn't change as a result of years of contemplation and considering the evidence and interviewing people and those kinds of things. It's not not after a long period of time, you know, I've given this a lot of thought and and over the years, you know, I've gradually changed my thinking until, you know, I think think Jesus has been raised from the dead. That's not the way it happened. In the span of one moment, Saul of Tarsus changed his mind about the resurrection of Christ. He went from committed denier and extremist opponent to committed disciple and active evangelist. How? How did that happen? You see, someone like Saul of Tarsus would require especially strong evidence to change his mind. And so here he is just, he's just hardened. And an extremist. I'm going to put an end to this gospel of Jesus Christ movement. It's his mission in life to do that. And in a moment he changes. Something very, very strong must have happened. Well, Paul begins to explain in verse 9. So then... I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them, even to foreign cities. And so notice the links to which Paul would go to... to to put a stop to the spread of the gospel. He said, I thought it was necessary for me to do things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I put these people in prison. I voted to have them put to death. I punished them. I forced, I coerced, I compelled them to blaspheme. I was furiously enraged against them. I kept pursuing them. I kept pursuing even to foreign cities. Again, his mission in life, I'm going to put a stop to this gospel. And then he describes his experience on the road to Damascus. Verse 12. While I was so engaged, I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said to me, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Get up, stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. Rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you, to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the dominion of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sin and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So Paul says, As hardened as I was against the gospel, when I was home on the road to Damascus to 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 imprison some of these Christians, this is what I saw a light shone down on me. I heard a voice. I asked, who are you? He said, I'm the Lord, I'm Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? In that moment, Saul of Tarsus realized he was 100% wrong. and became a believer. He was an unbeliever, but he became a believer. He went to Damascus. He was taught there by a man named Ananias. He was baptized. And became a and then began to preach, began to preach the gospel that he had been persecuting up to that point. Verse 19 describes his obedient response. "King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and even throughout all the region of Judea, even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. This is the reason some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death, and so I became a preacher of the gospel. Now, this is my experience. This is why I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Because on the road to Damascus, I saw Him. Didn't see a visual representation of Him. I saw Him raised from the dead. Didn't see uh, you know some, some sort of uh, 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 visionary appearance. Something like it. No, I saw Him. I saw Him raised from the dead. And now, of course, I'm a believer. And what I'm trying to show the Jews is that the promises made to our fathers are fulfilled in Him. So let's continue reading in verse 22. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. And so I'm not preaching anything new. I'm not preaching a new religion. I'm just saying that what God promised the fathers by the prophets has come to pass in Christ. This is a continuation of what God established through the prophets. I'm simply showing that what God promised is fulfilled in Christ. And these people don't like that. And so they've had me arrested. He was to proclaim light to Jew and Gentile. He was to proclaim that Jesus died, was buried, was raised again on the third day, and that Him, in His name, there is salvation. Well, the next part of the story tells us that Paul makes his presentation very personal. So when Paul began to talk about the resurrection of the dead, uh, Festus interrupts and said, Paul, you've lost your mind. And Paul responds to that, no, that's not quite true, I haven't lost my mind. And then he turns to Agrippa in verse 27. And he says to him, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? But, you know, we might have a tendency not to make it quite so personal, mightn't we? Well, how about, you know, uh, Agrippa's in the room, and Festus is in the room, maybe some other people in the room, some soldiers, some servants. And, you know, we might tend to say, uh, you know, we all need to believe what the prophet said. Look how personal he makes it. Calls his name, King Agrippa. Do you believe? That's the big question of the Bible, isn't it? Do you believe? Not... Do you agree? It's not, what do you think about all this? It's not, what's your opinion? Or how do you feel about it? Do you believe it? Do you believe? Is the question that the Ethiopian man asked? what hinders me from being baptized? If you believe you may be baptized. Do you believe? It's sort of the question that's involved in the conversion of Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? You must believe. Do you believe? If you believe, you can be saved. It's a critical question, isn't it? And so let's talk about that for a few minutes. Bible faith is not merely being convinced that certain events took place or that certain propositions are factual. And so a person might say, well, I believe Jesus was raised. I believe that event took place, but really have not much impact on his life. Or he might say something like, well, yeah, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. And the same way that a person might say, I heard on the radio, it's been a few years ago now, a musician was being interviewed, classical musician, and the interviewer asked him, who's the greatest musician that ever lived? And the man said, well, really the conversation is about who's in second place. Because the person who's in first place, there is no question who's in first place. It's Bach. Well, a person can believe it. Well, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. In the same way that you can believe Bach is the greatest musician in the world and really not have much impact on a person's life. Biblical faith is deeper than that. It's stronger than that. It's a strong conviction and assurance. It's a certainty in our mind that what is accepted is true. Those are the things that the writer of Hebrews talks about in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so that's biblical faith. That's the kind of faith that we're being asked about. Do you believe? Do you have this assurance? Do you have this conviction that Jesus is raised from the dead and that He is, in fact, the Son of God? It's not, well, you know, I tend to think that or I lean toward, or I'm disposed to think, it is I am convinced of it, and I am sure of it. Do you believe? That's the question. Do you you believe? Biblical faith is having confidence in and trusting in the gospel of Christ to save. Having confidence that Christ is the Savior, trusting in Christ as the Savior, in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 50, we read that Peter had enough faith, at least for a while, to walk on the water. And then he begins to sink. And what does he do when he sinks? Lord, save me. You see, he's putting his trust in the Lord. I find that interesting. He doesn't call on the disciples to pull him into the boat. Jesus is on the water himself. But, Paul, but Peter says, you save me. My confidence is in you. My trust is in you to pull me out of this situation for you to save me. Now, that's saving faith. That's biblical faith. Do you believe? Do you have that assurance? Do you have that conviction? Do you trust in the Lord to save you? Well, the demons believe and shudder. They don't have that trust in the Lord, that confidence that the Lord will save them. Not everybody has this kind of faith. A person might think he doesn't need to be saved, and so he doesn't have this kind of faith. A person might think that he can be saved by his own good deeds. You know, if I do enough good deeds, that'll sort of counterbalance my bad deeds. Or if I do some big good deeds, that might counterbalance the many small bad deeds that I... That don't work that way. You see, if we have saving faith, it's in Christ as the Savior. Some might trust in Muhammad or Buddha to save. So these do not believe... No no matter what their opinion of Jesus might be, they do not trust in Christ to save. And so it's not a saving faith. A person who believes in the way we're talking about here turns from all other possible sources of salvation to Christ. He puts his trust in Christ. He relies in Christ to save him from his sins. And so do you believe? Trevor, do you believe? Roy, do you believe? Bill, do you? That's what Paul is doing. King Agrippa, do you believe what the prophets? I, I know that you do. And so we've got to ask ourselves that question. Do we believe? Not only accepting the facts about Jesus to be true, but trusting in him to save. And if you say, you know, I don't th- I've got some faith, but I don't think I've got that kind of faith. Okay, well then God ask God to help your unbelief. (laughs) Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's why we read the man saying in Mark chapter 9, verse 24. I know our time is out, but I have a second question that's very much like the first question. Not only do you believe, will you commit? Do you believe? Will you commit? Agrippa responded to Paul's message, I think, with a somewhat flippant remark. You almost persuade me to be a Christian, or do you think you can make me a Christian in such a short time? Or with a little more effort, you can persuade me to be a Christian, perhaps. But Paul responded that he would like to see Agrippa and all others become what he was. He says, except for these chains, I I wish you were like me, except for these chains that are binding me. I, I wish everyone were. How is that? There's a contrast between these two men, isn't there? There's Agrippa and Paul. Both of them believe to some degree. Paul says to Agrippa, I know you believe. And so even Agrippa believes to some degree. But one is fully committed and one is not. And that makes all the difference. And so the second question the scriptures ask of us is will you commit to what you believe? Let's make that personal. Roger, will you commit? Simon, will you commit? Chuck, will you commit? Let's make that personal as well. Will I make a commitment? When presented with the evidence that Jesus is the Son of God and Savior, some will acknowledge it to be true, but when asked to act on that, they will not commit. Here's the evidence. Do you believe it? Well, yeah, I guess so. Will you commit to it? Well... Begin to hem and haw, evade, avoid, shuffle their feet, hang their head. They don't completely renounce their faith, but they're unwilling to take a strong, bold, courageous stand. You see, they understand there's a price to be paid for making a commitment like this, and they're not willing to pay it. They understand committing to being a disciple of Jesus, it's going to cost them their lifestyle, their friendships, their relationships, their pursuits. And they're un- unwilling to, pr- to pay that price. It's the faith that the priests had in John chapter 12. Many of the priests believed on him. But they were unwilling to confess it for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. It's the faith that the rich young ruler had. If you want to follow me, sell everything you've got and give it to the poor. He went away sorrowful because he had lots of possessions. It's the faith that some disciples had. John 6, verse 66, upon hearing this, many of them said, this is a hard saying, who can bear it? And they turned away and followed Him no more. And that that will not save. Too many people are like this, I fear, have some faith unwilling to commit. Even some church people, don't you think? (laughs) Perhaps even some church people have some faith, not completely renouncing their faith, strong, full, complete commitment. Mm, Dragging their feet a little bit on that one. On the other hand, Paul committed completely to the Lord. He says in Acts chapter 26, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I was called to go preach. Hey, I went. I started right away preaching the gospel, even in Damascus. He gave up all earthly advantage Philippians chapter 3 tells us. He believed and so he spoke it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 tells us. And this is exactly what Christ calls on us to do. Rouse all that you have, including self, and follow me. Luke Luke chapter 9 verse 23, Jesus says, Take up your cross daily and follow me. Luke chapter 14 and verse 33 tells us that if a man uh, doesn't give up all that he has, all of his possessions, Jesus says, he cannot be my disciple. Earlier in that same passage, anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Someone doesn't carry his own cross, he can't be my disciple. We're to put our hands to the plow and not look back, Luke chapter 9 and verse 62. We're to sell all we have and follow Christ. And the way I'm using that particular statement in this context is, whatever you have, whatever it is that stands between you and full commitment to Christ, get rid of it and follow Christ, as Jesus asked the rich young ruler to do. We seek the kingdom of God first, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. I can imagine some people saying, you know, I would like to do that. I'm a believer. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe He was raised from the dead. I believe the experience of Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. I I, I believe that. I think all that is true. I'm willing to put my faith in Christ as my Savior. I'm I'm, I'm not going to try to save myself. I understand that's just a a futile endeavor. So I'm going to put my faith in Christ. But you know, I can't sell everything I've got. I've got a family. I can't quit my job. I can't leave my family behind. I can't do all those kind of things. Well, I would respond, that's not what Christ calls us to do. But to seek His will in our family. To seek His will in our work. To seek His will with our possessions. In every aspect of life. To seek His will in all of those things. That's what it means to be A disciple completely committed to Christ, seek His will, do His will, in every aspect of life. And so we ask again in conclusion, do you believe? Not just do you believe, do you believe? And if so, will you commit? Only a yes answer to those questions will save us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together, to worship you, to sing together and pray together, and think about what you've done for us, especially in the sacrifice of your Son. We're thankful we can open up the the Scriptures, we can study them, we can learn from them, that you've revealed to us what you want from us so that we might live a life that's pleasing to you. Father, we pray that we will think very soberly about these things, very seriously about these things, that we will uh, devote ourselves to you through your Son, Jesus Christ. That we will put all our faith, all our trust, all our confidence in Him as the Son of God and our Savior. That we will be fully committed to Him. That we will give up anything that stands between us and Him. That we will seek His will and seek to please Him in all that we do in every aspect of our lives. We understand, Father, that you've made full commitment to us in the gift of your Son. And it's only right that we make full commitment to you in response. And so, Father, we ask for your help in doing that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.